Uh, he teaches at Ethnos 360, formerly New Tribes Mission. Uh, he is training up, theologically speaking, next generation of missionaries to go out to unreached people groups and to learn their language. And everything that he teaches them now ends up being the doctrine that they systematize together in order to communicate to them from the Word. And I'm very uh, thankful to call him my brother in Christ and the incredible uh, place that he plays, the place that he holds in training up missionaries. So, Professor Dave Field, why don't you come on up? Yes, about the professor thing. <laughs> I, uh, I think I told you this before. I'm, I'm working on a... I'm working on a master's degree at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School down near Chicago, right? So I'm studying. And one of the students heard that I was studying for my, my degree there, and so he, he called me Dr. Field in the hall, and I stopped him right there. And I said, uh, son, there's no Dr. Field. There's never going to be a Dr. Field. I'm not even a registered nurse. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, so, yeah, uh, we serve, uh, my wife and I serve at Ethnos 360 Bible Institute. That's a mouthful, I know. Uh, if you think of us as New Tribes Bible Institute, part of New Tribes Mission, that's just fine. That's what we were, still what we are. Um, we have a two-year Bible school program that focuses on the Bible and missions. We teach book by book, and when we get into the New Testament, we go down to verse by verse. Uh, two years training people in God's Word so that they can go and serve Him wherever He puts them. Uh, many of our students do end up in the unreached people groups of the world, translating scriptures and planning churches. That's what we're excited about. Uh, we have a lot of students, though, who come and do the two years, and the Lord takes them other places, and we're excited about that as well, because many of them end up in, in uh, local churches, pastoring, etc., etc., all over the country and all over the world. So we're just praising the Lord for the opportunity to serve that way. Uh, Pastor Jeremy... Uh, um, Give me permission to do a little uh, little advertisement this morning. So I'm going to do this quick. I don't want to take time away from the Word or what we're really here to do, but I, I'm going to uh, make a little advertisement just quick. Um, I, as a Bible school teacher, am not paid a salary. Uh, we're, we've, we've, we are living and have been living on the donations of God's people for the last 20 years as we've served with the mission um, this last year was a hard year financially for us, and I let, uh, let Pastor Jeremy know about that. We actually lost uh, quite a number of supporters, personal supporters. Uh, so Jeremy mentioned that I could uh, throw that out there to you. you as a congregation, just let you know of our need. You as a church support us officially, um, but uh, we have a need for individual uh, monthly donors to join our team. We look at it as a partnership. This type of work takes people uh, working together to train folks to go into missions. So I'm on the teaching end of things, and we have people uh, from around the, the country, friends of ours and so on, who support uh, what we do as a couple and support what we do at the Bible school there. So if the Lord touches your heart, you'd like to be part of our, our financial team, I'm going to leave some information up here on the podium for, for you, Jeremy, and whoever's uh, interested in, in joining us in that. Um, and of course, you can, you can reach out and talk to us about it too. My contact info is on the card there. All right. Um, I want to spend a little time just in prayer before we get into God's Word today. I really, uh, it was, I was glad that we did communion this morning, um, just because what Christ has done, what Christ has done in His death and resurrection and the giving of the Spirit, is what has given us new life. That that is what has made us God's new people. And we're going to talk about what it means to be the new people of God today. So it was, it was a, a great moment to just celebrate Christ and His death. Uh, for us there right before we get into the Word. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we do love you. We love you 
Because you are a good God, we love you because you have revealed yourself to us through your Son, the Lord Jesus. We love you and we love him. We love you for giving us your word, which describes what you have done. Lord, you have not left us without a witness. You have not left us without an explanation of what happened. Um, and even though it's so many years ago, because of the Spirit's presence in our, in our bodies, these things are new and current and real to us today. And I pray that, that even more so uh, this would be the case as we study your word. As we look into the image of God today and how we have become the image of God the way you want us to be in our world today, I pray that um, this will resonate with our hearts, this will be instructive for us, and I pray most of all that we will learn to live the things that we know. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to talk about the theme of the image of God today. Um, and so if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, we do have some verses. We'll go up on the slide there. Um, and if I don't remember to tell you to advance the slide as you hear me reference different verses, you can just move it ahead there. I'm sure we'll be fine. We're going to talk about the theme of the image of God. It has been said that the history of the world is the story of two men. History of the world is the story of two men, Adam and Christ. Okay, first Adam and second Adam, of course. So we're going to start, we're going to do kind of a little walk through history and look at this idea of the image of God from Adam all the way up till the present day um, in, a bit of a, in a bit of a survey. Uh, if you look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, original creation narrative here, it says, Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In verse 26 and 27 there, we have this statement that man, mankind, that is the man and the woman, are made in the image of God. And it says it three times, okay? Uh, now, what's interesting in the verse is it doesn't clearly tell us what it means to be the image of God. We have that statement made there, and this has left a lot of people guessing over time as to what God intended here, what is the image of God. Um, so I'm going to throw a couple of different ideas out to us here that people have thought, and I think these, the, all of them make sense. Uh, number one is the human personality. Something that humans are is God-like. Uh, humans have what we, what we call mind, emotions, and will. Okay, that's what makes a human different, right? Humans are different from the animal creation in that way. Now, you may differ from me a little bit there. You know, my, my, my pet dog has a mind, and it also shows some emotion when I come home at the, you know, at the door. So there's emotion and a mind there. But in a, in a way that is unlike the animal creation, humans have mind, emotion, and will, right? We, we, we relate to each other and to God on a different level. We're, we're, we're different that way. So something a human is, maybe that's what it means to be the image of God. We are God-like in that way. Another thing that could be going on here is that mankind was given a function as a representative of God. Uh, if you look at the verse there, it says God wanted the humans to have dominion over the created order under God, right? We, when, when it says that man is made the one to have dominion over creation, it doesn't mean that we take God's place, but we serve as like vice regents, as little king and queen under God's ultimate rule. Okay, so maybe it's relating to some, not just something that man and woman have, like a personality, mind, emotions, and will, but maybe it's related to something the humans were created to do, a function representing God. And I actually think it's, it's both. 
Um, in the old, uh, in the old cultures, the old pagan cultures back in the in the uh, Old Testament time, we had a lot of kings, pharaohs, and, and and different monarchs and so on who looked at themselves as the image of some kind of a pagan god. Okay, you can read these old documents where the pharaoh was called the image of you know Hoth or of Ra or whatever these different gods were, pagan gods that they worship, right? False gods. And uh, sometimes the, the pharaohs and the different kings back at the time were called the son of these different gods. You know, Pharaoh, the son of Ra, whatever, the image of Ra to the world, something like this. Okay, crazy idea, right? But there's something, there's something true about it because a lot of times in our, in our old pagan myths, there's sort of a remembering about something that's real from back the way God made it. God made man and woman to be his image and his likeness on planet earth and to rule the creation for him. There's a royalty, there's a, there's a, a reigning aspect to humanity, the way God originally made it. You look down at uh, Luke chapter 1 in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus, it goes all the way back to Adam. It says, Jesus is the son of, is the son of, is the son of, goes all the way back to Adam. And it says, and Adam was the son of God. Interesting, right? Adam, in a sense, is son of God and king of the creation at the very beginning. A couple of implications here for this idea of humans being made in the image of God. Just a couple implications before we go forward and talk a little more here. Number one, uh, gender doesn't make a difference when it comes to being the image of God. You look at the original passage here, it says that man and woman, male and female, were both made in the image of God. One of the saddest moments in a particular class session I had was I was teaching and, uh, about the image of God, and I had a young lady come up to me after class in tears, and she says, I just realized that I too am the image of God. I says, what are you talking about? She says, I thought it was just the men. I know. It says right here, Genesis 1, God made male and female in his image. Okay? Different roles within the marriage, we get that. But before God, men and women, image of God, created like the divine. The, the, the world recognizes this as the divine spark. There's something God-like in all the humans, right? That's interesting that they recognize that. Of course, we know the truth. So we have a relationship with God. We were created like that. We are created to have a relationship with the created world as well, to relate to God and to relate to the world as, as uh, kings and queens under God. That was the original sense of the idea. Uh, Back in the old times, back when there were kings on earth, the kings would place statues, images of themselves around their realm. Why would they do that? seems like an odd idea. Pictures of me all over the place. Put my picture on a coin, you know, send it around for all the people to hold in their hand and have in their pocket. Why would they do that? It's a reminder that you live in a realm that belongs to somebody. Okay? You live in a realm where there is a king. There's somebody in charge here. It's fascinating to me that when God made the world, God made an image, but it wasn't a coin and it wasn't a statue. It was a living, walking, talking, breathing image of God. And it's a reminder to the created world that there's somebody who's king here. We have these little ones that are like the king. Okay? It's a reminder to us and it's a reminder to everything else that God is the one who's in charge. All right. We need to talk Super Bowl for just a minute. I know some of your brains are there. Um, I like Jeremy. I'm very disappointed. A couple weeks ago, we had a very, very bad game, and of course, now we're not in the thing. So that's okay. I'm, I'm past it. I'm over it. I'm okay. Uh, let's think, though, about Super Bowl for just a minute. Okay, we have this one sort of amazing event that happens once a year where the, you know, half the world tunes into a particular television station and watches these guys play, play a ball game. 
Um, and, and I get it. Everyone sort of likes a nail-biter game. You know? So imagine your favorite team, whatever that is. We won't, we won't assume here. Imagine your favorite team, and then imagine your worst favorite team, the team that you would like to lose really bad, right? So the one you want to win, the one you want to lose. Okay, I'm getting hints already, names and stuff. That's fine. Imagine your favorite and your non-favorite, and they're playing in the Super Bowl. And imagine that you and your favorite are six points down, and there's two seconds left, and we have the ball. You know what happens, right? Guy snaps the ball, and all the boys run to the end of the field, and there's this huge long pass all the way to the end of the thing. And in a second and a half, we all, and they all, and an entire state, and half a country if you're the Packers, are going to be Super Bowl winners or Super Bowl losers depending on what happens with that ball, right? Somebody's going to catch that thing or somebody's going to drop that thing. That's what's going to happen. A lot hangs on one boy at the end of the field. It's a representative human there for a whole bunch of other humans, you know? And we're all going to go home like this or we're going to go home like this, okay? That's reality. Hey, Adam was God's Super Bowl team captain. The ball got snapped to Adam in the garden. And what did Adam do? Adam dropped it. Adam looked at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil along with his wife, and they said, yep, let's just go for it. Now, the interesting thing is in the story, Eve was the one who ate the fruit first. But we know what Adam was doing. Adam was standing off the side, watch Eve and see what's going to happen. You know, and the man knew what he should have done. The man should have cut the, head, the snake's head off and been done with the story right there. But Adam didn't do it. Adam let it play out. Adam went passive. Let the woman eat, watch what's happened, and then everything seems to be fine with her. So I'll have one too, please, and went forward with the thing. Okay, Adam really dropped the ball. You go to Romans chapter 5, Adam, who is the king of creation, along with his wife there, representative human for all the other humans, really messed it up bad. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, and dot, 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 there's going to be a conclusion to that to that sentence there, but sin came into the world through one man. Death came in through sin. How many of you uh, have read Greek mythology, maybe in high school or something like that? Okay, I'm getting a nod or two here and there. And for the young people, maybe you read Percy Jackson or something. That's Greek mythology for the young crowd, okay? Uh, if, yeah. <laughs> uh, how many of you know the story of Pandora's box? Okay, it's an old myth, right? There's the, the gods, whoever they were, hand down this, this, this magical box to, to a man and a woman. I don't remember the man's name. The woman's name was Pandora. The, the gods gave the box to the man and the woman, and they say, put it in your house there, but never look in it, right? You're not supposed to look in the box. So one day the woman gets curious, and she goes and opens the box just to crack. You remember what happened in the story. All the black evil that ever filled the world spilled out and infected everything. Okay, now, it's, what we're looking at here is an old pagan myth that, that is, is, a, is a twisted memory of what really happened. It's interesting that they sort of got the idea right, didn't they, though? They have a woman who opened something up, and it spread out and filled the whole world. Now, they, 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 they actually remembered that it was the woman. That's kind of fascinating to me. They didn't include that the man was there helping her open the box, okay, according to the, <laughs> the, the story in Scripture here. What I like about that picture, though, is the idea that when the box was opened, all the evil crawled out and infected the world. That's what happened the moment when Adam and Eve ate from the tree. When Adam decided to go passive and let the thing play out, death came into the world. Death came in, sin came in, through the one man. And it says, because all sinned. I look at what Adam did and I'm like, I wouldn't have done that. You ever look at the creation narrative and you wonder what would have happened if you'd been the guy? You know? 
Like maybe I would have made it a little longer, maybe I would have been a little stronger, you know, maybe I wouldn't have done it after all kind of thing. Here's, here's my comment on that. It doesn't matter what you would have done. You know why? Because God didn't make you the team captain. God made him the team captain. He dropped the ball, not you. He dropped it for you. That's the setup. So whether you like it or not, that's where we're at. Adam dropped the ball and we're all screwed because Adam. You know? <laughs> Scripture says that we sinned in Adam. It's like you were there. It's like you did it yourself, but he did it for you. Team captain sins, we sin. That's the way the story goes. Adam acted for the team. Hey, does, does man and woman, does humanity still have the image of God? Are we still the image of God? Yeah, we are. Interesting, after the flood, Genesis chapter 9. You know, the earth was destroyed because of the violence, right? God, God comes down and washes the earth clean, sends the flood, kills off all the humans except eight that are on the ark because of this, the sin of the world. And then after the flood, he says, we're going to institute capital punishment for murder because man is made in the image of God. What's he saying? Humans are special. Humans still bear my image. That's interesting. The image is still there, even though it's twisted and marred. It's not the way it's supposed to be, but there is something godlike in the humans. And God doesn't destroy humanity altogether. God wants to work back to that original purpose to bring us back to what we're supposed to be. And that's the beauty of the scripture story. God didn't leave us helpless and broken. God wanted to fix us, bring us back to his original plan. So let's go forward in the story. Let's go forward to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 2. Hebrews 1, 2. It says, But in these last days he, God, has spoken to us by his Son, that's the Lord Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Look at verse 3. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. We'll just stop right there. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. Jesus is God. Okay, if you want to see what God is like, we have the exact imprint here that walked around in humanity. Jesus is the image of God, we could say. Look at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 actually says it in those words. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Colossians 1.15, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. A couple of things here. Jesus is the image of God. Okay, we had an image of God, Adam, and that image has been passed down through humanity, a broken and tainted image, but an image nonetheless. Jesus comes on the scene and God says, there's my image. And then it says, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. Jesus comes to restart the race. Jesus comes to set us right. Jesus comes to bring us back to being the image of God the way God wanted. Jesus is the firstborn of a new kind of human, is the idea here. Firstborn of all creation. Let's look at John chapter 1. We'll spend a few minutes in John. I liked it that you read from John 1, Jeremy, earlier. That tied in really well, too. John chapter 1, verse 1. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. Of course, we know this is the Lord Jesus again. And the Word was with God. Okay, so there's separation from God. There's God and the Word. He was with God. And then it says, and the Word was God. So there's separation and there's togetherness. There's difference and there's sameness. Jesus is God and Jesus is part of the Trinity, right? 
Um, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, etc. Look at verse 14. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. So instead of God fixing the problem of humanity from a distance, God puts on skin and comes down to be among us as the image of God. He comes down to fix our problem from the inside. It's beautiful. Look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, that's the Lord Jesus, he has made him known. Translation, uh, the, the only God who is at the Father's side is a little bit, uh, it, it could be a little warmer. Um, one of the translations that I read says the one who is, is next to the Father's heart. I think the old King James says the one who is in the bosom of the Father. Okay, Jesus comes from the Father's heart. Jesus comes from the Father's side. Jesus and God were in complete union, complete fellowship ever since whenever. Back into eternity past, there's a love relationship, a communion, a fellowship, specialness, closeness, right? God wants to save humanity and bring us back to being the image of God the way he wanted without the sin. And he sends one from next to his heart. Who does he send? He sends the Son. Who is the exact imprint of his nature, image of God, like Colossians and Hebrews says. Jesus comes as the Son of God. Uh, You read the Gospel of John, Jesus keeps saying, I'm only here to do what the Father sent me to do. Remember that? You read in John, it's like, I will only do what the Father tells me to do. Satan tempts him and says, hey, worship me. And Jesus says, sorry, we're only going to worship God because that's what the Word says. Remember that? And uh, Pharisees try to get on Jesus' case and make him do this miracle or that sign or whatever. He says, I'm only going to do the agenda of the Father. I'm here to do the will of the Father. Jesus is acting as an obedient son. Adam is the son of God who was the disobedient son, right? At the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam picks the fruit and knowledge and those things over God's will. Jesus comes and undoes what Adam does. Jesus comes as the obedient child, the obedient son. I'll only act like the father wants me to. Jesus has a relationship with the father. Jesus also has a relationship to the world like the king was supposed to have, right? Relationship with God, relationship with the world. Jesus is an obedient son of God, and Jesus shows a relationship with the world that is God-like and king-like. Jesus comes into the world. He walks on the water. He makes food out of nothing. He heals people's sicknesses and diseases. Can you imagine if Jesus came to Portage? You know? I don't think it would just be the people with the broken legs and so on that would show up. I think it would be the people who had a cold and a headache would show up. You know, all you got to do is talk to the guy and, and then let him touch you and you're healed. I think sickness, disease, and death took a back seat in Israel for like three years. Jesus has mastery over all that stuff and the demons come trembling and coming out of people and Jesus can raise the dead. You know, Jesus is the king of creation. He shows that in all the realms and all the things that he does. So he has an obedient son relationship with the father. He has a relationship of power over creation. He's the king. Jesus is the head of a new race, John chapter, or Romans chapter 5. We were in Romans a minute ago talking about Adam. Adam wrecked it really bad. You know, if you, if you read the story of Romans 5 and you stop at the beginning of the section, you end up with Adam wrecking things really, really bad, and it's depressing, right? Adam, Adam messed us up so bad, you know, brought in the sin and brought in the death and the end, I guess, right? The thing is, that isn't the end. The... the Between Romans 5, verse 12 and verse 21, Paul spills a lot of ink to make a couple of small but very important points. First point is Adam wrecked it really bad for all of us. 
And then the second point is that Jesus fixed it so good it's bigger than Adam's mess. Adam wrecked it really bad, but Jesus fixed it even better. Okay, You get into Romans chapter 5 now, verse... Let's read... It's always hard to know where to start in Paul because it's all one big long sentence, right? Uh, let's look at verse 17. He says, For if by the one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more... Oh, he keeps saying much more. Bigger than that, better than that, much more than that, will those who receive the abundance of grace... And the free gift of righteousness, their salvation, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus came down to be Adam number two. Jesus came down to restart the creation as the, as the head of something new that's going to create people who will reign in life. There's king language coming back. Man and woman were created to be king of creation and we lost it. We, we, we gave it up. God says, I'm going to send my son, the king, the right son, and he is going to bring you back to reigning with me. There's a hint at purpose there. So Christ was tempted and succeeded. Christ brings in righteousness. Christ brings in life. Christ has an amazing effect on humanity. And uh, as we read uh, earlier with Jeremy there, John 1.12 says, As many as received him, the Lord Jesus, he gave the right to become what? Sons of God, right? Sons and daughters of God. Bring us back to that original relationship. Okay, we have to do one more thing, and then we'll do some application. Uh, We're going to turn now to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. I don't know if I've got a slide on this one. Yes, I do, I think. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10. So Adam was the son and the image, and Adam messed it up. Jesus comes as the son and the image, and Jesus starts to fix it. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 says this, For it was fitting that he, that's God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory. Let's just stop there. There's a statement of purpose here. God wants to have many sons. God wants to have many sons and daughters. God wants kids. That's odd. That sounds weird to us, doesn't it? But God's original purpose in creation was to make a family. To make a man and a woman, and eventually the world would would have been overspread by humans who were sons and daughters of God, reigning in life over God's, God's beautiful creation. That was the original intent. Things went sideways, and God says, I haven't given up on the thing of wanting kids. God wanted to make many sons and daughters. It says it was fitting for him in doing that to make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The Lord Jesus had to go to the cross to get God's aim of having many kids. Now look at verse 11. For he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's us, all have one source. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them, us, his brothers. I have a big brother in the heavens, you guys, and so do you. Okay? Jesus is not ashamed to call me brother. Isn't that interesting? Jesus has done something through his cross that has brought me and you into God's family where we can be called sons and daughters of God as well. God is moving us back to the original purpose, image of God. Uh, Paul keeps using uh, uh, in Christ language. You guys study the epistles of Paul, Ephesians and Colossians and Romans. Paul keeps talking about these people who are in Christ. What does that mean? It's like code language for the Christian, basically. What Paul likes to do a lot in his writing is he likes to describe what Adam made as like a family, like a unit, like a team, like the Super Bowl team type thing. That's where I got that from. Okay, we have these people who are all connected to Adam. There's a sphere, a realm, a kingdom over here that the head of that thing is Adam. 
And all these people are born in Adam, we can talk about, right? And as Adam goes, so goes the team. So there's sin and death and condemnation and wreckage in this bubble over here, this team. Jesus comes down and creates something called a new team, a new family, a new race, a new dominion, and we call it in Christ. And Christ is the head of that team. And as goes Christ, so goes the people in that team. Righteousness, life, reigning, image of God. Paul does that all the way through Romans. Romans chapter 5 especially. There's the comparison of the two teams, right? So we have people who are in Adam, people who are now uh, in Christ. How do we get from Adam to Christ? We talked about it during communion. John chapter 3, this, this old Pharisee comes to Jesus at night and wants to talk theology with Jesus. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, you need to be born all over again. Nicodemus is confused. How does that happen? Right? Jesus says to him, you're going to have to believe in the crucified Son of Man. I'm going to go up on the cross like the snake on the pole in the Old Testament, and the one who looks at him will live. What does it mean to have life? It means to be restored to this son-daughter relationship with God the Father. Right? To have the Spirit of God come and live in our heart. Jesus is describing that, that realm. To, to come into Christ, to become part of him. New birth is necessary. And what we find in the pages of the New Testament is that when a man, woman, boy, or girl puts their faith in the sacrifice of Jesus, they are brought into this new family and they begin to be called terms like the image of God. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And it's verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... On this team over here, he is a new creation or a new creature, as some translations say, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. There's a brand new start. We're starting over again, new creation. It's like Adam in the garden, right? Original purpose of God. Uh, Galatians 3 verse 28 says that in Christ there is no Jew or Greek, so ethnicity doesn't matter. In Christ there is no slave or free, so socioeconomic status doesn't matter. In Christ there is no male and female. Gender doesn't matter. In other words, anyone can become one of Christ's people. Anyone can join the new humanity. Right? There's no one-ups in, the, in, in this world. Nobody any closer or any further away. We're all lost in the family of Adam and those who put their faith in Jesus. Anyone can come over here and be part of this family. In Christ, it's called. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 15. Talks about Jesus abolishing the law of commandments. Talks about the Old Testament law expressed in ordinances. That he should create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. Jesus has come to make a new humanity, a new kind of human, a new kind of person created in God's image. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, just down the page. Ephesians chapter 4, just down the page, verse 24. It says, We have been taught to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. God has started something in you, if you've put your faith in Jesus this morning, God has started something in you that makes you the image and likeness of God in a new way that you weren't before. That word likeness, you can basically translate it image. It's like he's alluding back to Genesis. Okay? God has made us as, as his likeness and as his image. Now, here's the deal. How many of us struggle with sin? 
I'm going to put up both hands, okay, so we can feel comfortable. <laughs> and because it's true, I really do. Both hands need to go up for this boy up here, okay? Romans 7, I get it, right? The thing I want to do, I don't do. And the thing I don't want to do, I keep doing it all the time, right? We struggle with sin. That is kind of par for the course in our humanity right now. Not that, not that we should be giving into sin, etc., but we as humans have a bent toward it. We've got this old flesh thing living inside. We've got a broken piece of the old Adamic creation that lives here. So here's the question. If God has taken me out of the family of Adam and moved me over to the family of Christ, is everything better right now? No, it's not. It's not all better right now. Why? Because I still got this old thing hanging on that I have to deal with every morning. Right? I'm still tempted and I'm still pulled away by my old lusts and pulled toward sin. That is reality for the Christian. Now there's a way through that. Trust Jesus and trust the cross and call for the power of the Holy Spirit. And walk in the right way. Walk in obedience. But we are going to struggle until Jesus gives us what? A new body? Okay? What has happened is that we are, we are, we are kind of halfway fixed. I like to tell my students we're sort of halfway there living on prayer. Does that work? I don't know. <laughs> we're halfway fixed. I have a spirit that has been redeemed by Jesus. Image of God has been created in me. And guess what? The story isn't done yet. There's coming a day, Scripture says, when I will get a body that matches the spirit that I have. A body that will no longer have sin living in it. A body that won't be susceptible to temptation and sickness and disease and death and all those other things. Right? Can you imagine having a perfect body that would cooperate with the Spirit of God that lived inside you, and you would just do the right thing all the time, just naturally, effortlessly, no problem. Wouldn't that be great? That, that's called heaven, okay? <laughs> we're waiting for that. That's the glory of the resurrection. That's the thing we're headed toward. We are halfway fixed. What God has done in our time is God has taken the end goal of, remake, of making creation all over again, and he's tipped it back and poured some of it back into the present age. He's given us his spirit. He started the new creation in us right now, but don't, don't kid yourself. This is not the end of the story. There's more coming. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 talks about this. Romans 8 is probably my favorite chapter in the Bible, and there's a lot of reasons for that. A lot of threads from all over the Bible come together right there. Read it sometime slowly. <laughs> uh, Romans chapter 8, verse, and here again, I don't know where to begin because uh, it's Paul. One big long sentence. Let's look at verse 23. Romans 8, 23. Paul says, And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. What does that mean? We have the Spirit who is the first fruits. First fruits, is, it means it's the beginning of something. Right? God gave us the first installment on a two-part gift. There's something that's coming for us that's great, and God has given the Spirit in our heart as a guarantee of part two, right? Here's the Spirit as the first fruits. So we who have that, we of the Spirit as the first fruits, we groan inwardly. There's the, the human struggle. As we wait eagerly for something. What are we waiting for? Paul says we're waiting for adoption as sons. That is the redemption of our what? Body. We're waiting for bodily resurrection. Paul calls that the final installment of our adoption. There's, there's coming a time when my body will be redeemed as well, right? Resurrection, new life in every way. We wait for that. We eagerly wait for it. Going forward there uh, with, with hope. Uh, look at verse 19. I should have read this one first, but read it now. It says, The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of who? The sons of God. I don't know if the animals 
have a conscience of this like I think they might, but it's, it's a thought. It says, creation is waiting eagerly for the sons of God to be revealed. It's almost like the created world remembers that in the past there was a son and daughter of God who were the perfect image of God. Perfect king and queen of creation. And then the people messed that up and that sort of went away. It got marred, it got wrecked, it got destroyed. And creation since then has been remembering that there was that. And they're waiting eagerly for what? For it to come back. When Christ remakes our bodies, when we are redeemed fully, when we are resurrected, guess who's coming back? Sons and daughters of God, you guys. Original purpose to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus as kings and queens of the creation. You go to the end of the story, that's what happens. You read Revelation chapter 20. Jesus comes down and you have people reigning with him. It says it again in Revelation chapter 22 as well. Okay. So God's story starts with a creation with a king and queen, image of God, and God's story ends with a whole world that's filled with images of God, kings and queens over the entire creation, under, of course, the one king, God himself. It's a fantastic story. And the way into that is through the new birth. Let's, uh, let's talk application here. Number one, dependence on God. Dependence on God. We need to depend on God for who we are. Uh, all of us have an understanding of who we are that's been given to us by different people, right? You're raised by parents and they tell you the family story and who you are in that family, you know? And you're raised in a society that tells you who you are or supposed to be in the American story, right? And you've got, you know, the kids at school that, that give you an identity when you're growing up. That's who you are to us. And the people on the sports team give you an identity according to how they think of you. And Satan's got a version of who you are, right? And the ungodly world around us has a version of who we are. Wackos who believe some weird mystical stuff. Okay, everyone's got a version of who you are. Which one's the real one? Guys, it's got to come from God's word. So we need to look at scripture, look at the scripture story and find, find the answer to the question, who am I according to God? What does God say you are? It's a song that says, I am all you say I am. I love it, right? Look at God's word. God says you are now the image of God. And you're really going to be the image of God in a little while. Just wait for Jesus to come back. That's, that's who we are. That's identity. Uh, we need to take God's fact over our feelings. You know, very, very, very seldom do I wake up in the morning feeling like the image of God. <laughs> maybe two days out of the entire year, you know, and the rest can be manipulated by a good cup of coffee and maybe a back rub or something else, you know, make me feel a little better about myself, okay? What am I saying? Emotions and feelings are very fickle, aren't they? We need to come to God's word and take fact, God's fact over our feelings no matter what we feel, no matter what's going on, no matter who tells us what we are to them. God's fact over our feelings. The other thing is this, we need to depend on God for his spirit's power to live out our new identity. A huge part of the new you that has been created by Jesus is the life of the Holy Spirit living in you. You cannot live as God's image, as God's son or daughter on this planet without the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry, it's impossible. I've lived long enough, tried enough things without the power of the Spirit to realize that Dave Field on his own isn't going anywhere. And same with you. We need to have a relationship with the living Holy Spirit. Thankfully, he lives inside us with the power to live the Christian life uh, as we should. God living inside. Okay, second application. First was dependence on God. Second application is this. We are people in process. We are people in process. What does that mean? That means be patient with the people around you. 
Be patient with the people in this room around you. Other Christians, you know, we get upset at other Christians like, oh, why did they do that? Oh, there they go with their old habit again, the way they talk, the way they act, this and that. We get down on other people. Realize that that person, that man or woman, that brother or sister in Christ is, is, is growing in their relationship with Jesus. And there's a progress forward to the new them that's going to be in the future. Be patient with yourself. Right? Because I want to be completely fixed and have no more problems, but unfortunately I've got to slow down and be patient with the process, realize I'm going to have some problems for a while until Jesus comes back. Be patient with yourself. You're not all better. Right? So we can have grace to each other. We can have grace and acceptance with imperfection because God evidently does. Right? God doesn't look at my sin because of the cross. God is content to work with me in my mess because of Jesus. So I should be content to work with you in your mess and everybody else in their mess and with myself in my mess. So patience. People in process. First uh, John chapter 3. Good verse here. First John chapter 3. First huh. John 3, one. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. There it is. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is it did not know him. Okay, the world doesn't get us, right? It doesn't relate to the children of God. Verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. There's Romans 8. Because we shall see him as he is. There's the transformation, right? Now look at verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. People with their eyes set on the goal, on where the story is going, Live lives that, that, that chase change. Live lives that allow Christ to be formed in them. We purify ourselves as we walk forward. We're all in the process, you guys. It's not a done deal yet. Lastly, last application, we have dependence on God. We are people in process. Last one is this. As God's image bearers, we are God's representatives on earth. We are God's representatives on earth. We live out a new kind of humanity. The world doesn't understand us, but you know, at the end of the story, we are going to be all that's left. There's going to be a world filled with people like us in perfection. The others won't be there, um, sadly. We live out a new humanity. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 has a really good verse on this. Philippians chapter 2, you are God's representative to the world. The, the Christians, the church, are God's people for the world. That's what we've been put here for. That's why Jesus left us here. Philippians chapter 2, verse 15 says this, uh, 2.14, Philippians 2.14, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, there it is, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Is our world uh, crooked and twisted? Oh yeah, and getting worse, right? We live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Look at this next part. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. Our place is to be light. The next verse talks about holding forth the word of life. Okay? We are the light in the dark night. That's who we are. We are God's representatives to the world. We are the representatives of a new kind of human, a new kind of humanity that God is starting to create. We're the new thing. We're not only representatives of who it is and what it's like, we actually invite people to come and join us. Revelation chapter 22. This is where we'll end. Revelation chapter 22. All through the pages of Scripture, God has been inviting humans to come back to Him. Ever since the fall, God has been saying, come, come, please come back, right? Through the cross of Jesus, He says, come, come to me, come back. Doors wide open. Revelation 22, verse 17. 
says the Spirit and the Bride say come. Okay, who's the Spirit? It's the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's inviting men and women to come to God. Who's the Bride? That's the church. That's us. The Spirit and the Bride speak in tandem to the world. They say what? Come. Wide open door. The Spirit and the Bride say come. And if that isn't clear enough, look at the next part of the verse. It says, and let the one who hears say come. So question, have you heard God's call to you saying come? Yes, you have because you've come and here you are. (laughs) Okay, so let the one who has heard do what? Turn around and say come to the people who haven't come yet. This is our job. This is what we're here for. We are left as representatives and as witness to invite the world to come. God, God wants every human in his new kingdom, in his new world. Now, we know from the end of the story that not all of, them, all of them are going to come, but you know what? A lot more can. And a lot more will if we give them the invite. Spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. And then lastly, let the one who is thirsty come, and whoever wants to, let him come and take the water of life for free, without price. That's what it says. All right. We are God's representatives on earth. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for what you have done. Thank you for coming down here to fix what we broke. Thank you for coming down here to be the new Adam, head of a new race, head of a new creation, to give your life to a broken world. We ask that you would give us your power by your spirit this week to be witnesses to that new creation and to call people to come to you as you want. In Jesus' name, amen.